Welcome to another episode of the Daniel Energy Partners In Basin Observations Podcast. Today we are here at the INET offices with the CEO of the company, Mark Slaughter, John Daniel, and Bill Austin. Um, we're going to ask Mark a little bit about his business. We're on the road, but we're not in Midland or anywhere like that. We're actually in Houston, Texas. So uh, with that, welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be here today, and thank you for doing this today, and welcome to the Galleria. Yeah. Well, we had to fight our way to the Galleria, so yeah. that's it's yeah, just, always a little just difficult. don't come during Christmas. So. Yeah. yeah, I will not. <laughs> yeah. um, so, all right. So, we'll just we, you know what we like to keep these things short and sweet. Um, so, we're going to jump right in. Um, so, Mark, just high level, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came over to INET, how you came to lead the company. Yeah, th thank you for that. Uh, I'm an old Halliburton guy, so I spent my first 18 years with with Halliburton Company and uh, started in the field driving a pump truck and uh, worked my way up into you know some some roles overseas and senior staff roles in m a and uh, corporate planning and then i've really kind of stayed in the oil field but uh, you know made a move into that uh, intersection of telecommunications in the oil field about maybe 15 years ago and that's really been my my career thread ever since so staying in the oil field but getting a bit more techie in terms of uh, the approach to the business and then tell us a little bit about INET. I mean, look, we, we understand on a high level about what a, little, a few people know, you know, operating a private LTE network, your telecommunications. But I think that, we, you know, just for our listeners and for a lot of us, we're not exactly telecom guys, we're oil field service guys. Tell us a little bit more about INET in, in, in itself. Yeah. Well, it is an oil field services company, but it's also a telecommunications company. So it's a dedicated remote communications company for the oil and gas industry. It's beginning to, to bleed into new energy as well, given our coverage. But the company was formed in 2011 as a private LT network. It's got its own dedicated spectrum and you know associated Nokia electronics in it. So we have 130,000 square miles of coverage in four basins. So it's the, all of the Permian, both in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. It's the Eagleford Basin, where we have coverage, uh, the Scoop Stack in Oklahoma, and then the Bakken in North Dakota. So think of you know central U.S. and attractive flat topography for cellular networks. And you, you, we talked about this a little bit before. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your customer base? Who are you selling this to? Yeah, very, very good question. So we're, we're focused on upstream and midstream energy principally, a little bit of renewables that's under coverage as well in Texas. But then think of drilling, completions, production. So it's very operator focused, but we also capture some of the larger drillers and also the oil field services companies that arrive at location. So, uh, you know, we have 94 towers in the network and they connect to, you know, several hundred uh, drilling rigs, and then, you know, a few thousand production sites uh, across this 130,000 square mile network. We, you mentioned the four basins, Permian, Eagleford, Scoop, Stack, Balkan, and the flat topography, but what prevents you from going into the Marcellus, Utica, or other parts of, of the country? Well, if you go to the Marcellus, it's very hilly, so all of a sudden the economics of a LTE network, because you need reasonable line of sight uh, mm -hmm. between the towers and, and, the, and the drilling rigs, uh, you would probably go in there with satellite, most likely. And right. so one of the things that we're doing is we're adding additional last-mile access technologies, principally satellite, into our portfolio, so we're not just an LTE company anymore. Okay. And when did you br start introducing the satellite? Uh, when I arrived back in 2019, we began okay. looking more aggressively at, at additional ways to connect sites. 
Got it. And and then, you know, when I looked, had a chance to look over your website, and you know, a lot of impressive logos of customers. Yes. Is that? Uh, did they all sort of start showing up in 2019 when you when you came on board, or how much was legacy and speak to? Well, a lot of know. that was legacy. The okay. company started as a wholesale network operator, meaning that they would sell to other service companies that would then sell to the oil mm-hmm. and gas community. And one of the moves they made prior to my arrival was to say, wait a second, why aren't we serving in customers directly? Why aren't we going directly to the operators and become a service uh, arm, not just a network operator? Of course, that, that requires building field crews, uh, setting up service centers and all these basins, a little different model than just running a network. And so that transition was well underway. And so with that, you know, we, we had earned you know, quite a, a strong spot with the network and the mm-hmm. field service arm and the customer service that that company delivered. Uh, that that's established us with a number of operators. Okay. Yeah, like even going back a little, just as we think about this, you know, you hear LTE networks. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing that that kind of dumb guys on this side probably say, all right, why couldn't you just get this from AT and T or or Verizon or something like that? I know you guys are different. You're an oil field services company, so t- like, tell us a little bit more about that to help us understand that. Piece yeah, I think that's a good point. Why not go with one of the you know major public carriers? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One, you know, they're very strong mm-hmm. uh, along Interstate 20 out in West Texas and around the bigger cities such as Midland and Odessa. But that coverage and that consistent coverage drops off pretty dramatically when you get to other parts of the Permian, and so that's one difference. Is we have 98% coverage of the Permian Basin. Uh, and so, and, and the other basins as well. So the point is, is that, you know, we're ubiquitous. You can go anywhere you want in the Permian and you've got excellent uh, LTE coverage, you know, for your remote operations. Mm-hmm. The other aspect is the, the public uh, wireless carriers don't have a field service arm. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing would be the dedication oil and gas. You know, most of us like me are from the oil and gas industry. So we know the use cases at the edge. We know the unique and, you know, high demand uh, aspects of the business. If you're AT&T, is, you know, if somebody calls into the network operations center, is it a consumer? Is it, is it a truck driver? Is it an oil well? And, uh, you know, we know that every call we get is, is going to be about the oil and gas business. How do you, going to the service aspect, how many employees do you have now at INET? Yeah, it's about 85, and okay. about uh, half of those, well, a little less than half are here in Houston at our headquarters. Right. About 40 or so are out in Midland, okay. in our, our service center just north of the airport. <clears throat> and then we also have a small service center in Pearsall for South Texas, mm-hmm. and then employees also based in Oklahoma, North Dakota. Okay, and do those employees, are they every day driving out to location to check on the customer, make sure things are going fine, or are they sort of in a central hub, and then when a problem arises, they get in the truck and head out? Speak to their day-to-day job. Yeah, so there's both installation and service. So, okay. you know, if you think about a, a drilling rig, a drilling rig out the Permian is going to be moving every, what, 30, 60, 90 days. So we go out and set up the network around mm-hmm. the location, you know, pad-wide Wi-Fi, direct connectivity to the company man's trailer, tool pusher, and so forth, directional drilling trailer. Um, we may have cameras out there, all of that. We set that up. So that, that's a, you know, a several-hour job. And then at the conclusion of that drilling project, we tear it back down. And then as the rig moves to the next location, we set up again. So there's a fair amount of work to commission and decommission our service. Mm-hmm. And then in between, we hope it's not very often, but occasionally we have to go out there for service because something breaks or so, right. something's wrong with the mm-hmm. service. Now, we have a network monitoring center that's here in Houston that monitors the whole network. So hopefully we can solve it here. But if it does require a technician to dispatch, we can do that. Okay. And speak to, if you don't mind, the uh, 
Because if I'm not mistaken, you guys have had some pretty rapid growth. Yeah, that's, the last couple of years. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what's you know, driving that? Yeah, what's driving that? Yeah, yeah. and and, and yeah. what was that growth rate sort of like? So yeah. you know, we like everyone else, we went through the 2020 downturn, but coming out of there, going all the way to last year, we grew 40 percent over. 2021 and we're anticipating this year we're not public so right. i give you a projection we're expecting 60 percent growth okay uh, and that's just here in the united states and so that's really driven by you know improving activity uh increasing bandwidth demand at the edge that okay. that's that's been a, a common theme is as people are looking for more application uses at, at the edge more remote management of operations right. uh you know looking to you know different ways to perhaps get more efficient maybe cut the carbon footprint a bit all of that is playing right into what we do and, and provide. Okay. And, and what does that re require from you? I think companies like Halliburton and others have talked about more re remote monitoring, remote services. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they, may, they mentioned that at a recent conference. What do you do to increase the bandwidth or what do you, you know, from, are you uh, deploying more equipment on that site or how, how are you, how are you growing as the as the bandwidth. Yeah, so we, we put our LT network in place yeah. in these basins a few years ago, and as bandwidth needs have grown, we've now st uh, struck an arrangement with Starlink, Elon okay. Musk's company, you know, SpaceX. And we have other ways to deliver bandwidth as well, but we now uh, integrate both Starlink and our private LTE service together. Uh, there's a technology, it's a bit of an acronym in this business, but it's SD-WAN, but software-defined okay. wide area network. But think of it as a way to combine those pipes together. And so all of a sudden now we can deliver tremendous bandwidth. And so one of the things I like to do is I look at KPIs. And back in 19, when I arrived here, I think the average rig in the Permian was consuming about 750 gigabytes of data. You know, it's mm -hmm. just, just kind of a benchmark number. And we looked again last summer, um, and it had grown to a terabyte, the average rig, both uplink and downlink. Uh, and so that was 10% growth a year. You know, that's interesting, right? Yep. That's, that's kind of what's happening, more application usage, remote management, ESG monitoring, everything that's going on. So we were pretty excited about that. But then we started deploying Starlink with LTE out there, and instantaneously we saw usage consumption grow to four to five terabytes a month. Okay. It was unbelievable, instantaneous four to five hundred percent growth in bandwidth usage. So we were in effect holding back the business. Oh wow! And uh, and operators and drillers and service companies quickly took up whatever we could provide in terms of bandwidth. And we're not sure what that upper limit is. Right? Yeah, it's like the it's like the highway theory, right? You add a lane, and people immediately there's immediately traffic. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like Katy Freeway here, we went out to what it was sixteen lanes, and it's still full. Right. right. And so that's the idea. Is that it's not quite the same as build it and they will come. I'm not sure it's quite that. Way, but what we did find is we may have been inadvertently throttling the industry a bit, and there was a lot more need for for bandwidth. But how do you how do you yeah. make money as the demand for if you go from seven fifty gigabytes to one terabyte to four to five? Because you sell hardware into to the, to walk me through the business yeah, yeah, model. So, bit, so. Yeah, 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 that's good. Good. So now we, yeah. we provide a managed service on a right. drilling rig. So it's our equipment that's out on the rig. We don't sell equipment. What okay. we provide is a service. Right. So in effect, we're charging for the bandwidth. Now we don't meter it in the sense that uh, that you know you pay by the minute, pay by the byte sort of situation. It's not a metered service, but could it for, be? Could be. That's the way uh, a lot of cellular providers do right. it, or they'll put data caps on. So we're uncapped. Um, and but we'll look at the you know data usage that we expect an operator you know to to, to utilize in the course mm -hmm. of a month, and we'll you know set set the the pricing accordingly. Okay. 
Yeah, but once once they pay that price, it's it's all you can eat. And we think right. that's also a, a differentiated service because if you're with the public carriers, they cap it. And right. when you get capped, you get throttled. Okay. And so all of a sudden, and that doesn't work in a, in a mission-critical field operation. Right. And speaking of mission critical, I mean, how do you make sure there's no downtime? Yeah. I would think that's pretty important. Well, that, that was the other reason to overlay a second network uh, at each drilling site. Uh, because if you think about it, if, if Starlink is a different and diverse network from our private LTE network, there, there are very few instances where there's one thing that could happen that would take both of them down. Right, and so given that, that the, the availability or the reliability of that network just goes up astronomically. Okay. Uh, the math would be, and this is a little bit low, but let's say one network is 99% up all the time and the other one's 99% and they're diverse, it's 1% times 1%. That means it's 99.99% mm -hmm. reliable immediately. It's almost completely up. Right. And so given that, that's, that's what customers need today uh, in, in mission critical field operations. So yeah, so when customers come to you guys looking for this the service that you offer, what are they? There we talked a little bit about remote operations. What are they most concerned with today, as to what they want that internet that that network for? Right. Well, what they what they choose us for is the reliability of that service, and then there's something called service restoration time. What does that mean? You're in the oil field; it's harsh, it's remote, things break. So, how quickly can you restore service? How how quickly can you get them back online? Because in many cases, they have to shut down operations; mm -hmm. it becomes a safety issue okay. if they're not connected. And so, given that, those two factors are probably more important than anything else. Maybe a third would be the value-added services that you bring with that connectivity. Mm -hmm. You know, connectivity alone is an enabler, but right. it's not necessarily solving use cases. So uh, a lot of our customers will have their own applications that they're running over the network, but through partnerships, we bring different additional value-added services on top that go with our, our field connectivity. And that can range from ESG monitoring uh, to intelligent visual monitoring where you're putting a computer vision on fixed cameras at a site and mm -hmm. it's 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 kind of monitoring activity and obviating the need to send people out there okay um yeah yeah no I'll, i mean because that, that, that's really interesting because i guess again not just at other conferences you're hearing a lot about this remote operation i, right. I now hit it on the third time but like that's a big part. Like you've got guys in Houston that are probably running or looking at a frack job, and they don't want that to go down in the middle of, of said job. The, the the network so that they can see what's happening if something were to go wrong, or just again to monitor so they can have those real that real time data in order to to make better decisions, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you think of you know an operator with several frack jobs running simultaneously, they can send a field engineer out to each mm -hmm. frack job, or they could centralize that. But to do that, back in the office, they've got to be absolutely confident that that connectivity is going to stay in place. Right. Because they're making you know, decisions around sand concentration or you know, making real-time yeah. job decisions that may make or break that well uh, and change its economics. And so you've got to be very confident. And that's where a company like ours that's very reliable you know, can play a key role. When we hear, talk to E&P companies and they ask about things like service costs, they'll talk about OCTG, rig rates, frack costs, sand costs, they don't ever talk about IT, telecommunications costs, at least not with us, probably because right. we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> but, but I'm just curious, like, how, how is the sale made? I mean, are you selling to the, you know, the head of IT? Who do you sell to? 
Yeah, in, in the in the U.S. land business, I, I think it's three layers of selling. It's you're, you're selling at the field level, you know, to the company manager, the tool pusher, also to the field offices, and finally to the corporate office. Right. Um, and in terms of you know where we fit on the AFE, we're one of the smallest cost lines there. Right. But we also think it's one of the most mission critical services that's out there, uh, particularly today with more and more remote operations happening, where the decision makers are back in the office monitoring and directing activity. Uh, okay. and, and so playing that role, we, we like that positioning because while, while we hate to say that, that, you know, but price is less sensitive in that situation right. because you're re a really needed and valuable service. But when you go out, on, let's just make up names here, just keep yeah. it simple. You work for, let's say, you know, uh, Diamondback, okay. And you, so Diamondback has contracted you, Bill Communications, Bill Austin Communications works for Halliburton. Halliburton goes to location. They've got Bill. You're using me. What happens when you've got different yeah. providers? Does that ever create an issue? Like who uh, you, yeah, you can create, well, technically you can create a noise level that where all of the communications start interfering with each other. Right. That could happen if you have too many providers. And it does happen in an onshore context, much, much less in offshore drilling. Uh, but it, you know, what, what we try to do is set it up to serve everybody out there. Okay. And so when we set up, you know, we're, we're you know, radiating uh, kind of a pad-wide Wi-Fi that anybody can connect to. So we try to be the preferred network out there, and that can limit the others who come out and then create interference. Okay. And it benefits everybody. And, yeah. but, and I, I'm assuming the operator has the final say as to which service is out there or no? They, they do for themselves. Okay. Uh, there could be a separate provider uh, you know, for the driller. Right. The, the rig owner and the service companies can sometimes come out with their own networks. Fair enough. You but, see, but, now you can see just how little I understand about your business, so I apologize. Yeah, but, but what we want to do yeah. is serve everybody. Sure. And, you know, the, the, the first the first opportunity to sell is to the operator who's drilling the well. Yeah. But if you're there and pre-positioned, why not serve everybody else out there and be that network of choice? Okay. You know, as the nerdy analysts that we are here at DEP, <laughs> we try to look at things such as activity growth. Right. We're going up, we're going down, right? The anecdotes that we're hearing increasingly today is U.S. land is hitting a speed bump initially in gas markets, but it might bleed over into some oily markets. You know, oil prices are where they're 70 bucks now. 70 they, bucks. they were in the 60s, and Waha's pretty low as well, if I'm not mistaken. What's your visibility to U.S. land? And then you alluded to offshore earlier. I know you have in your prior career, you did a lot in offshore. If you'd also touch on what you're doing in offshore today and where you might be yeah. two, three, four, five years from now and characterize the differences and your visibility in both those areas. Yeah. Well, first of all, if the U.S. land rig count goes flat or even softens a bit, that's not a worry for us because okay. our market share is not such that we're moving up and down just with the overall market. That's one thing. And we're beginning to expand from those four basins I named to other basins such mm -hmm. as the Haynesville and the Marcellus. and. DJ Basin, et cetera. So we can, we can set up and, and grow geographically and, and offset any softness in okay. any particular basin. But the other thing I, it's worth mentioning, you touched on this, is with adding Starlink into the portfolio, we're no longer restricted you know, to the U.S. onshore market. And we're beginning to expand today initially into North America, and that means Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. So we have active business today in those areas, and then we're setting up to go into the North Sea, West Africa, and the Middle East okay. uh, later this year, and then probably in 24, both Asia Pacific and South America. So, so we're kind of looking to really do what we did before. This team came from RigNet, and yeah. we're looking to do some of the same. Uh, difference would be that it won't be just oil and gas. While right. that will be our initial thrust and in how we're known, 
uh, you know, given some of the toxicity uh, through which investors see oil and gas today, though I think it is getting better, right. uh, you know, we will have probably a broader vertical market focus that would include renewables, utilities, and mining. Okay. And so it'd still have an energy and natural resources orientation, and oil and gas will likely be the biggest component, but it won't be the only. Okay. Yeah. This is like, it's funny, we've touched around Starlink a little bit, and I'd like to kind of hit on that a little bit more. Sure. Because um, it's not necessarily something that we as oil field service guys get to talk a lot about. I mean, the Elon Musks of the world and billionaires tend to not necessarily dabble in our, in our industry. Um, but tell us a little bit about how you guys have worked with Starlink, how that is additive to your service, but like, you know, this is different than what you guys have done in the past. It adds a, another layer, but it also it's a technology, again, that neither John nor I know, know a ton about, but how does that help you guys? And what has it been like working with a, a company that's not necessarily, you know, deeply invested in the oil and gas business? Yeah, we, we like working with Starlink, but it is a little bit of a challenge. They're looking for partners who are willing to evolve with them. They're trying to, you know, figure things out. And so, when you're serving a demanding oil and gas industry that can you know present its challenges at times but nonetheless it's a very very uh, exciting and new technology so uh, it used to be until those two billionaires showed up jeff bezos and elon musk it used to be a nice kind of stable sort of industry and there were satellite operators out there who had what are called geo or geosynchronous satellites those are 23,500 miles up and so from a Earth observer, they look stationary above you. Uh, the, the only challenge with them compared to terrestrial networks is the fact that there's a high degree of latency associated with that signal. So certain applications had trouble performing well, right? Engineers could work on it, but it was still a bit of a challenge. Well, Elon Musk has launched this Starlink service that's not 23,000 miles up. It's, it's about one to 2,000 miles up. And so all of a sudden the latency approximates what a terrestrial network would be, fiber or microwave or, or cellular. And so they've complete, almost completely closed the gap while retaining mobility. So think about our LTE network here. What if everybody left the Midland and Delaware basins and moved over to southwest New Mexico? That became a new hotspot. I'm just making that up. Right. What mm -hmm. would we do? We'd have to we, – we, we put our stakes in the ground. Well, with right. Starlink, you just – Truck, truck those terminals over there. Okay. And so, you know, it's going to be incredibly disruptive because it's got all the advantages of a terrestrial network, yet it's got the mobility features that they don't have. And so it's... Uh, so it's, this is additive to your service. It's right? additive to our service. And so, what, but it's also a consumer internet service. So we don't believe in it as a sole way to connect a drilling rig that needs okay. mission critical operations. So we tie it with something else. So in our case, it's our private LTE network plus Starlink. And that way you take a consumer internet service, layer it in, and it becomes a sturdy enterprise service, we, we believe. And then beyond our network, we'll tie it together with other types of satellite or other LTE. We'll always have two, mm -hmm. at least two or mm -hmm. three networks landing at any site we serve that, that, that's critical. Okay. You, You're going, I'm just going to jump back to yeah. offshore yeah. for a minute. Sorry yeah. to that, no, jump that's back good. and forth. We tend to do this. <laughs> but yeah, I was just thinking, like, let's say I'm, I'm TransOcean and I've got your competitors – system on my rig what's the sales pitch for you to them why should they switch to you well what they will have yeah that's a great question what they will have is old technology they will likely be landing geostationary satellite mm -hmm. an example is they will have equipment on the rig that's many times more expensive than what it would take to deploy starlink out there um, 
rough numbers, the antennas associated with the geo service on a floater rig right. is probably about a quarter of a million dollars for, okay. for gyros mm. gyroscopically stabilized antennas because you need two because the rig moves. And so if you replace that with Starlink and perhaps even a KA band service, your, your Starlink CapEx alone is only $5,000 mm -hmm. for equivalent service. So pretty, I mean, I mean, the orders of magnitude changes in, right. in cost structures. Wow. Uh, and so what you find is, is that uh, an attacker like INET that has no network overseas except Starlink and whatever we layer in in third-party networks, we can go in and make, you know, decent returns on our capital investment, mm -hmm. whereas you destroy the economics of the incumbent that not only had, you know, put too much CapEx in place compared to where the world is going, but also has take-or-pay commitments with those old-line satellite operators. Okay. So, so you know, the, what's going to happen is there's going to be quite a disruption among service providers, particularly led by attackers like INET. But what, who, the people who are going to benefit are the oil and gas operators, the drillers, and the service companies right. who are going to get more bandwidth, better performance at, at a much lower cost. Well, since you're not a public company, I mean, you, you talked about the 40% growth in 21. Oh, 22 over 21, yeah. excuse me. And, you know, hopefully 60, 65% this year over. U.S. only. U.S. only. And so that raises the question, if you have your sights set on a lot of other stuff besides the U.S., is your growth rate growing faster in 24 versus 23 because you have new markets? I mean, It Dep no? depends on the end market to a degree, but yeah. yes, let's, let's assume – you know, it's still a good, you know, multi-year upcycle, even if it slows down a bit. Uh, you know, we think that that indeed can happen. Now, our economic performance, if we're stepping out in new regions, those are, you know, startup regions sure, for us. Right. So from an EBITDA perspective. Right. I'm just talking yeah. about top line and yeah, top customer line. penetration. It, it should. Yeah. We, In fact, you know, there's a good chance we could exceed 60% 60 this year if we're able to get established internationally and offshore. Okay. I want to come back to, yeah. sorry. No, you're good. What I don't get is like if, if, if you know. I can't remember who I have as my utility provider. I don't even. But like, if they came in and said they're raising the rates five percent, like I wouldn't. I'm not going to go try to rebid out my utility or my community or my my internet service, right? Like maybe some people too. Yeah. I don't. But I mean, like, are people RFPing your service? Like, why can't you just every year throw a five percent increase, ten percent increase, make up the number, right? Just horseshoes and hand grenades. Why can't you do that? I, I've had a you know, long experience with that. And, you know, when you come into business, you'd love to be like the uh, rig owner that pushes day rates and, yeah. and tight markets and has to give up day rate and down markets, whether you're offshore or onshore. Big flexes in those rates. We, we find here that the, that the rates, partly because I think they're small, right. um, they don't really get pressed down in down markets appreciably, but you also don't get the same opportunity to push them up. Uh, unless, unless you're adding bandwidth, adding services. Now, right. if you do more, if you right. provide more of the customer, yes. But for you know, like for like, uh, you're not really able to, to to push you know pricing. But again, as the dumb guy, you've just gone from 750 gigabytes to four to five. Sounds like you're doing to terabytes. That's a lot of byte. I mean, <laughs> that seems to me like there's something that you've done that provides some extra value. Or yes. No? Yes, oh, that is right. Well, that, and that revenue has gone up. Okay. We, we look at revenue growth by the number of sites we serve, which right. would be the count. We also look at the so-called ARPU, average okay. revenue per unit, you know, or in this case, a rig yeah. or a frack job or, or producing well, and that has grown as well. Okay. And those are roughly equivalent in terms of their contributions to our revenue growth. Okay. And then how much of your time, right, because you're 
like, what is your day-to-day? I, I get you're the CEO, but what's the day-to-day job? How often do you go to see customers? How much often do you deal with like regulators, all the communications issues? Like, what what's a typical day for Mark Slaughter? Yeah, a typical day is working with you know the management team, and you know it's a fun period, but it's a stressful period because right. we're we're going through high growth and trying to figure out which are the opportunities to chase and which ones, given our size, do we have to pass on? I've, I'm also working on strategy with the board and top investors around expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also like to make sure we get out and see customers and right. also go to conferences. And, uh, you know, while we are an oil field telecommunications company, we're a little bit of both. So I have to go to both kind of satellite and telecom conferences as well, mm-hmm. you know, to, to make sure I'm following the technology trends, but also, you know, to the oil and gas related and renewables conferences so that, you know, we're, we're talking to customers. Are you increasingly spending more time with C-suite of your customers or is it a decision that's made at the lower level? How do you how do you penetrate that? The C-suite. The answer is yes. Yeah. It, it, it's really, as I was saying before, kind of three levels of selling right, at, right, yeah, right. At, at the rig, at the field office and, or region office and at the headquarters. I try to work you know, at, at, at the top level in part because what you can convey is not just the improved performance that we can deliver, but the cost savings. Right. And uh, that's going to speak certainly to a, to a CFO. Uh, that you know that you can you can you know get more for less in this environment and really put a, particularly if if an, if an oil and gas company or driller is running their own networks mm-hmm. I think we can yeah. show that as a specialist we can keep them current with technology and also run it more efficiently because that's what we do for a living and it allows th- those companies to focus more on what they do right. and their core competencies. Yeah, because I was going to start going down that road, John. You, you were asking about the, your day to day. I mean. Look, again, we talked to a lot of oil fields, very traditional, a new frack company that started, a new wireline company that started. You guys are different from the technology perspective. What, you know, but you're still oil field services. What is that kind of like startup? I mean, I know you haven't been here since 2011, but that you're still in the nascent stages of growing this business. How is that different from running a regular oil field services company? Now you're a telecom technology type of company. Well, a lot of it is still the same in the sense that, you know, we're white collar and blue collar. So mm-hmm. we have a headquarters office with engineers and, you know, finance people. Then you get out to the field and there are field technicians who are driving pickup trucks with steel toe boots and hard hats. Yep. The difference is, you know, in- instead of a hammer, they've got a they've got a screwdriver or something, you know. The, but, the, you know, we have telecommunications specialists, but they're out in the oil field just like everybody else. And so we have the same challenges of safety on the road and, uh, you know, safety operations at the edge. All of that, but I think you know maybe what's different for us is we have that you know technology angle, right? Um, and it's not it's not so much the OTIT layer; it's the foundational field connectivity layer. That if that's not working, none of the OTIT aspirations for the industry can be realized unless you have reliable connectivity. Mm-hmm. So we think it's a you know important, almost no, noble role, and we have a you know strong passion around making that happen. You know, digital transformations of field operations so that they can realize the full benefits of that in their operations. Cool. One of the things that you you mentioned, this might be an inappropriate question, but you talked about compliance, like how you guys could play a role. You see all the data that's flowing through in theory, or you could, right? Right. You know, in, in the world of ESG, I would think there's, what can you all do as an add-on service to help with social or governance maybe at the field level through better, I mean, I'm not gonna like speculate on what people might be watching on site and all that stuff, but there's, how do you help the company improve that? And, and, and the E as well? 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we think across our entire you know business model that we're helping the the industry deal with E. Right. right. Either whether it's proactive, you know, methane monitoring, or it's just the idea that through our technology you have to go out to the field less often. Right. You know, that's going to save wear and tear on the roads. The safety of driving out in the field, you know, is, is, is enhanced because you're not out there as often and uh, better lifestyle for employees because they're not not as many of them have to be at the edge right so that's good on the social and governance side you're, you're right you know, we have the ability you know to see what types of traffic are traversing the network right. not necessarily the specific data that's that's not our business right but the types of traffic and you know you're right there could be a we don't have that but there could be a service developed is say for the more governance focused parts of a of a customer right if they were wanting to you know play some role i suppose that they could okay. be developed but okay. have, have not really been asked for that okay that's just interesting yeah it is it, it, it's it yeah it is, it, it is interesting because we, we do see the types you know like uh, there but what there is a lot of explosion this is an interesting thing a lot of explosion of what we call crew welfare mm-hmm. which on on land rigs or people using it for personal reasons and we can segment that so it's not impacting the mission critical business communications or real-time data flows we can isolate that to a certain portion of the network right but it is an important one uh, that's provided almost as a benefit to employees more important in the up cycle where you're trying to retain field crews. Right. Uh, it's much less important, uh, you know, in the down times. Uh, but in, so we're finding in an up cycle today that, uh, you know, there is a lot of crew welfare usage of the network with, within where we can allow it. I, mean, I get it. I get it. If you're sitting on location and you're in between stages or whatever, you're not working, you want to yeah. go watch ESPN and watch March Madness, right, or whatever. Yeah. But I wouldn't want that guy running the drilling rig with one hand on the joystick the other hand watching you know netflix and that's where i'd be like how, how do you yeah, yeah. How do you, you know from yeah I, having a tv screen in your vehicle while you're driving down the road yeah right. it doesn't yeah. i mean I, yeah maybe the, I, I yeah and, and you know the, our, our role would not be to stop something like that we're not even saying that goes on but, right. but we just know that you know a lot of times there's dead time waiting time on on a rig or at a completions job as you say between right. stages you know, apart from the pump down. And so given that, uh, you know, we know that there's casual use. I mean, think, think about yourself walking around the airport. If you're not talking to somebody, you pull your phone up. It's yeah. a bad habit. It, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bad, bad habit, habit. It's, yeah. but it's a, it's a natural thing. And people out there want to have the same access to, to the social networks that they have, you know, back here in the city. So. Okay. I want to I keep coming back to the numbers you threw out, but 750 to one terabyte to the now four to five. Where could that go? I mean, like if everybody decides they want to monitor this stuff remotely and, you know, like. Well, we're just moving into offshore and I think everything's getting rebenchmarked. It used to be a terabyte for a land rig, right. three terabytes a month for a jack up rig, and then five terabytes and up for a floater. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And now, uh, you know, a land rig has moved up for us into that jack up and floater range. And so where are those guys going? We're not sure where, where it's it, the upper limit is. I mean, that's okay. what we're providing today. Right. If we provide more, will it still go up? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you just think about all the data that a, that a rig. I mean, I don't even know yeah. if we even know all of the data that yeah. you would yeah. want to have measured uh, on an offshore, uh, on an onshore, let alone an offshore rig. It, yeah, they'll move more. There could be more edge compute, and then right. you know, a lot of the edge compute uh, results. You know, the the data there is shipped back. You know, to the cloud, which is a lot of what we do. And then the information insights are delivered to the customer. So you know that that just may continue to grow. Okay. Something else that is kind of in the telecommunications area, but there's something called asymmetry to networks. Mm -hmm. And so typically our network is architected for two to one. So the downlink speed, you know, to your rig is more than the uplink speed. 
right? And it's usually about a two to one factor. So think about it, if you're sitting at your computer and you wanna look at a web page, you click your mouse on the web, web, web page you want, it sends a little data packet, says send me that page, and then this big data page comes down and loads on your computer, mm-hmm. right? That's, a, that's the asymmetry. What mm-hmm. you ask for is sending less data than what you get. And so that's been typical in the oil field. However, the Permian, we've noticed just in the last year or so, has gone symmetric. That wow. the downlink and uplink speeds are almost the same. Okay. And we say, well, what, what is going on? Right? What is, and so what's happening is there's more real-time data being pushed off the rig back to the office. Uh, we're not, by the way, we're not seeing that yet in South Texas, Oklahoma, or North hmm. Dakota. But we also think the Permian's a technology leader. We, and we, I don't know if you guys would agree with that, but yeah. that's, that's our yeah. supposition. And so that, and also the morning calls, you can use, uh, you know, video, uh, you know, the, like some Microsoft Teams and things like that. We, there's just a lot of things happening at the edge that's making the uplink, the mm-hmm. data coming off the rig as much as what goes to the rig. Right. And that, for, for network guys, that's a big deal because you have to re-architect and mm-hmm. be ready for that. Is there one, a capital cost to you all when that happens? No, we just have to be sure we can handle that. And one, one of the interesting things is Starlink um, is adding so much bandwidth. Um, it's 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 at a ratio of downlink to uplink because it's just a small pizza box, right? It doesn't have the ability to send a whole lot of data up, but yep. it's still 40 megabits a second, which is a massive up, upload speed hmm. uh, for for clients, and that can go up <laughs> okay. from there. And so so given that we're able with adding Starlink into our network, we can handle that change, and we think it'll spread across the other basins and probably across the industry. You know, it's it's a it's a real-time data trend. Okay, cool. I can keep going. Yeah. All no, right, no. here we go. Uh, M&A. What are the opportunity sets out there if you chose to be acquisitive? Because it sounds like you're trying to push newer technology. Probably don't want to buy the older technology, right? Kind of. I would think you wouldn't. But right. just speak to how, as you sit in sort of the, the captain's chair here, what, do you, what would you want to do, if anything? Yeah, so, well, first of all, our ownership, we're backed by Apollo, you know, right. one of the world's largest yeah. private equity firms, and then Altera Group, which is a, a company that plays at the intersection of energy service and technology. Uh, they're more venture capital, early private equity, but a good combination. So we've got very good and strong investors. And while our growth has been organic, we have thought, you know, proactively mm-hmm. about outbound M&A. And it kind of comes in maybe three buckets. One is... Think of it as horizontal M&A. You know, we're we're looking to expand into the offshore arena, uh, more so in the continent of the United States, Mm -hmm. internationally as well. Uh, You can do that organically. There may Mm -hmm. be opportunities to jumpstart that effort. Uh, Mindful, I think, to your point, if they're all stuck in old technology, that probably doesn't work. But there may be the right opportunities out there to to roll in some smaller players to give us that immediate footprint and, and immediate incumbency. The second one is in the digital technology stack, we're that foundational layer, right, mm-hmm. of, of field connectivity. But then you get up into the you know edge compute, the uh, cloud services, the applications that are run on top, and then the visualization of that data and turning it into information and insights. We think that's an area that you know we will want to look proactively mm-hmm. in, and that can be commercial partnerships as we do today. It could be strategic investment where we buy a small equity stake to align interests, or it could mean an outright acquisition. Right. And we do have to be careful. Uh, we did a after Apollo came in, we did a very detailed uh, consultant-led study of the business, and the oil and gas community said, "Look, uh, you know, provide the field connectivity." 
uh, don't pick our, our service on top, you know, the application, because, mm -hmm. you know, you take any category, ESG monitoring or real-time data, there may be 10 players in there. And how are, you know, if, you know, some oil company would look at us and say, how do we know that you're going to pick the, the one that's going to be the winner in that space? Right. If there are 10 players and you pick one, there's nine others that still may win. Mm -hmm. So it's a little too fragmented. So they, you know, the, the industry encouraged us to kind of, you know, stick to our knitting. But as we get go forward, we think there still may be some selective acquisition opportunities up the stack. But you know, we'd want to consult with our customers to be sure that those were the right ones. And maybe the better way is just to commercially partner, quite right. frankly. Last last bucket would be transformational M&A. You know, with our financial backing, we could literally look at anybody in our sure. industry. So there may be some opportunities to, you know, punch above our weight if we if we chose to buy, buy one of the bigger players and i mean in your prior life you took a, a company public mm -hmm. yeah that was rignet yeah. so yeah i was there from uh, 07 through early 16 and we took it public in 2010 would you ever want to do that again or was it are you having more fun <laughs> running a private business well, yeah, that's true. You, you talked about how you spend your time. All yeah. of a sudden, when Rignet went public, about 25% of the time was was public company activities, which is fun. Some of that's conferences, but right. there, there's a lot of extra stuff in there. Um, I like a, a private board and a and uh, a and a kind of a private business, uh, in part because it's very much focused on performance. Right. You know, there's guidance and governance you get from a board, and it, at least in my experience in a public company, the the governance end of it can almost predominate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you want to run the business according to proper governance, but you're really there to crack the code and grow the business. Fair enough. Question really unrelated to technology, but as a small company, but rapidly growing, with all of this confusion with the commercial banking system, what have you guys done internally? Oh, that's a that's a great question. So the, we, the we, CFO's not even here. Yeah, he doesn't even know how to answer that yeah, question. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> pat him on the back because he looks like a hero. So so we are we have you know have a loan right. with a one of the regional banks that's in the headlines, right. uh, not not SVB. And by the way, SVBB is the safest place to put your cash right now. Do you know that? <coughs> yeah. I, I, no, Silicon Valley yeah. because it's backed by the government. Yeah. Right? yeah. So yeah. so at least for now, it's it's yeah. the safest. You know. That bank is completely backstopped by the government. But we have a loan with one of the banks that you see in the news a bit, and we have our cash with another of the banks on there. So so arguably, in the latter case, you know, could we see our, our, our access to those funds restricted possibly? Could could the company that backs our credit line not be able to fund it because they get into trouble? Those are, those are things that we've kind of worried about. But we had already, because of the moves to international and offshore, mm -hmm. uh, we're moving to one of the big money center banks. Okay. <clears throat> and it was already in process before SVB blew up. Okay. And so it looks like we're seeing around the corner. Certainly our CFO is seeing around the corner, but these, these are moves well in process and, yeah. and should position us uh, much better going forward. That's him. Okay. Good to know. Well, yeah. But like any small business, you were obviously worried. I mean, I guess that's the uh, – yeah. I mean, we talked and, about and, it internally and, at DEP. Yeah, you know, we, that's we right. Just were, yeah, so. yeah, I mean, it's, it's a shock. And, you know, the one thing I think about is you, know, you start going overseas – you start getting into other currencies. You start yep. doing business in third world countries. If you can't trust your cash in the United States, you know how, how are you going to think about international operations? So it certainly caught our attention as well. But you know we think that you know, we have experience having done that before, and you know, this this won't stop us from expanding. But it certainly gives you pause. What I would be worried about is you know the impact of a broader banking contagion on you know oil and gas drilling activity, and uh, you know would that disrupt what we think is hopefully going to be a good multi-year run for the industry? Right. I hope not. Well, we do like to keep these podcasts relatively brief 
because we run out of questions. But uh, <laughs> but seriously, no. I, you, with the last sort, the last opening question, right. so what would you, what would the message be to potential customers, potential, your employees? What message would you want to convey to folks that you haven't touched on already? Well, I think that you know we believe we're a noble business that's really helping the industry advance and embrace you know digitalization of field operations and, and the benefits that can accrue from yeah. that. And so you know we like where we are. We we think we have an impassioned employee base uh, that's focused on delivering on that mission. And we're going to see where this can take us over the next few years. Yeah. You know, with, with it's not just Starlink, but Starlink I think has been a catalyst for us. <clears throat> that is going to allow us to really, you know, stretch out this business model well beyond where we owned that, you know, private LTE network. Right. And uh, we, we think we can, you know, reasonably expand into kind of a broader energy focus, not just oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't be, you know, bad, you know, or bad comment on the oil and gas industry. We love the oil and gas industry. Most of us have come from that. Mm -hmm. But we also recognize that there are other energy sources developing. And, we, and, and I think as I heard in a recent conference, this is not energy transition. This is energy expansion. Yeah. And so we want to play that role because we, what we found already, if you look at renewables, is a lot of the use cases are very similar to what you see in oil and gas operations. Right. So what we do can translate, we think, very quickly into these other uh, what we call logical commercial adjacencies. Okay. Very good. Well, cool. what you, you, you may, I said it was going to be the last question. I lied because you said something that piqued my interest. Uh, from an employee standpoint, OFS sector has had huge issues finding people the last couple of years. I'm assuming the person that joins your shop is maybe a different background, maybe more IT sophisticated. Lack for, I mean, how hard is it to find people for you, and what is their skill set relative to the others in the oil field? Well, a lot of our uh, recruiting is in the oil field, particularly out in the Permian. So we're tapping into okay, you the are. same mm -hmm. labor forces. And so, you know, the growth I've been talking about of, you know, 40%, 60%, and 5 to 10% a month, uh, you know, that's against the headwinds of a tight labor market and, you know, supply chain constraints. Right. The ability to get electronics in that, you know, that we buy to put out on rigs. It's really been a challenge. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've had to go to alternatives and, you know, be more creative about recruiting and retaining folks. But I think we've done a decent job. But, you know, we, we share in the same pains that probably everybody in our customer base shares in terms of getting, you know, getting and keeping quality talent. Got it. That's all I got. Yeah, that's Thank all Thank you I've very got much for letting us come in and talk to you. And thank well, you for uh, support, uh, for supporting us and coming out to the barbecue. You guys did provide provide the communications. We did. Yeah, yep. it, was it was Starling based Starling. as well. Yep. So if you, can, yep. uh, if you can get Elon to come out and be a judge this year, <laughs> uh, we would be very grateful. So, Yeah. Well, yeah, well, thank you, thank you again for the opportunity. We're pleased to be a subscriber. I, I, as I was telling you guys, I love to get that Sunday, Sunday, what afternoon, evening. Whenever get around yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Whenever you get around to it that day, but it's always a very good read to sort of get get set for the week. And uh, love the events that you're hosting. And you even, I think, launched your first event, Thrive, in in the midst of the pandemic. That's right. Which was a bold move, right? When you think about it, and it was heavily attended. Well, we we took a gamble. My my thought was if all of my friends in the industry are getting ready to file bankruptcy which a lot of them were or they said, thought we thought they were yeah you know then I'll, if thrive 21 failed we'd just join them i mean they would be part of the crowd no yeah. but it, what, what people i think yeah. enjoyed was a chance to see each good. other again right because we hadn't seen each other no it's right. been it's yeah. been a blessing and uh you know the, the astros have been fantastic yep. and minute Maid park is a great venue and so it's just been we've had a lot of fun with it it's so. been a good ride yeah good. Thank, thank you guys yes thank yeah. you thanks